We're glad you're joining us here at Common Thread Online. This is a recording of our community gathering as we do each week to think together about the spiritual journey. At the end of the lesson, we open the floor for discussion, but we'd love to hear what you're thinking as well. On our website are directions to download our app. Once you have it, join the group. What are you thinking? We'd love to connect with you there. A reading from the Gospel of John. Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Philip. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him about whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus, son of Joseph from Nazareth. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip responded, Come and see. My wife Maria grew up in a poor family in Black Mountain, just a little east of Asheville in the mountains of North Carolina. She was raised in the Pentecostal version of fundamentalism and earnestly bought into what she was supposed to believe, including the literal truth of the Bible and eternal torture for anybody who died without welcoming Jesus into their heart. When she was in high school, she applied to be part of the Rotary International Youth Exchange Program and was accepted, but with a bit of a kicker. Rather than being assigned to Greece or Australia or any of the places she'd selected on her country preference form, she would be spending her year abroad in India. At first her mom said absolutely not. Maria wanted to study abroad, at least in theory, but even she wasn't sure about India. Well, her mom soon reported that she'd prayed about the situation and heard from God that he wanted India to happen. And this seemed to be confirmed when the money from a special collection at church covered most of the cost of the exchange program. Just before she left, the church folks laid their hands on her and sent her off with a missionary charge. At the age of 15, having been duly anointed but with little travel experience behind, you know, beyond uncomfortably long car rides to Minnesota for the holidays, Maria got on a plane and flew halfway around the world, landing in a place as far from her culture and background as she possibly could be. India was chaotic and overwhelming to her senses, and the culture shock was intense. Maria spent the first few weeks desperately homesick, crying in the guest bedroom of her host family and listening to approved Christian music on her Sony Walkman, before bucking up and deciding, well, I'm here. I'm going to make the most of this. In fact, she thought, I'm going to get about the business of doing what I was sent here to do, give these wretched people some good news by introducing them to the real God. Well, there were plenty of roadblocks on this mission, though. <laughs> Maria's host family wanted her to engage in Hindu rituals that were frightening. Oh no, she feared. What if I break the commandment not to have false idols and worship other gods? What if I have to worship a coconut? <laughs> she made peace with it, though, thinking that if she went along to get along, maybe they'd listen to her when she ginned up the courage to tell them about her God the real God. One day early into her year abroad, Maria's host family took her to a Hindu temple outside the city. What she encountered there caught her up short. There in front of her was an old man, a Hindu priest, sitting in the lotus position and lost in silent prayer. What emanated from him was the last thing she expected. It was a river of divine presence and holiness that left her gobsmacked. And then she was mad, 
Wait a minute, she thought. I'm the one who is supposed to have the spiritual goods here. I'm the one who is charged with bringing the real God to these people, and I have been working my butt off my whole life to get what this dude obviously has. How can this be? Maria couldn't deny what she'd experienced, though. The encounter was profound. It reached her deeply in a place beyond all reason and logic. She knew in her soul something that her brain wasn't quite prepared to accept. That man, that unbelieving heathen of a Hindu priest, was a man of God. So Maria wrestled with this experience over the course of several days. Either she thought, my discernment is really off, and I didn't really encounter God there, which could be, I mean, I'm only 15, what do I know really? Or everything that I have all my life known and believed to be true is not. Maria was sure she was headed to India with the truth when what her young self really brought to India were preconceived notions. A preconceived notion is defined in Webster's Dictionary as an opinion formed beforehand without adequate evidence or information. We all have preconceived notions, especially when we're young. They're not consciously cultivated. Instead, they are handed down to us through the sets of assumptions and points of views of our families and often our faith communities. Then we get a little older and we form what we think are our own opinions, meaning judgments, viewpoints, or statements that no matter how informed or educated are not conclusive or else they wouldn't be opinions, they'd be facts. We tend to identify with our opinions have them define us even. We love our opinions. We think they make us who we are. But many scientific studies have supported what I think we all really know in our guts. Our opinions mostly belong to our groups, our political parties, our religious institutions, our families, our cultural influences, our circles of friends, our social classes. The groups to which we belong and that expect us to conform and from which our prehistoric tribal lizard brains fear being expelled. Religious opinions, particularly of the Christian flavor, can be especially sticky. Not only do we feel that instinctual life or death need to remain part of our group for fear of expulsion, but there is the eternal life question. You must agree with these opinions presented here in our Bibles and in our doctrines in order to escape the pains of hell. It's a kind of default setting in us to conform to the opinions of our groups and to find a certain kind of safety in that. So when we feel safe, rocking the boat by challenging an opinion within us feels very unsafe, which means it's really hard to change our opinions. And it's nearly impossible to change someone else's opinions, especially when we try using arguments and persuasion to address deeply held positions that are both unconscious and feel like the stakes are life or death even eternal life or death. And yet, that's what typical evangelism in the Christian church has tried to do. Preach the good news with arguments and apologetics, with lots of words and mouthy certitude, pointing to so-called evidence in the Bible, and if all else fails, leaning finally on the word of God to shore up its position and settle the matter. And how it ever came to that is kind of astonishing, considering what we actually read in the Gospels. Jesus doesn't preach doctrine, he tells parables. And instead of apologetics, we have stories about him and his followers that point to the truth much more clearly than any set of doctrinal teaching could possibly achieve. 
In the scripture passage I read earlier, which is today's gospel reading in the Episcopal Church, I picture the exchange between Philip and Nathaniel to be among old friends. Philip has encountered this mystical wisdom teacher, someone whose very being had to be extremely compelling for him to tell Philip simply to follow him and for Philip to just up and do it. And this Jesus was so compelling that Philip just had to share this news, finding his friend and saying, hey man, we found him. This Messiah we've all been waiting for for thousands of years, he's here, he's from Nazareth. I imagine that at first, Philip expected that his statement would be convincing enough because he believed it was true. But Nathaniel is pretty sharp with his retort, so clearly rooted in some kind of preconceived notion about the town from which Jesus hails. Nazareth? That lousy little town? Can anything good come from there? Now, if you're wondering why he asked the question, in those days, Nazareth was a very small community, kind of out in the sticks in the last place from which most Hebrew people would expect the Messiah to emerge. Calling someone a Nazarene would be like somebody today calling him a, a country bumpkin or a hillbilly. So I, th I think we all can relate to Nathaniel's experience and his response, because we've all experienced moments when we just can't imagine anything good coming from a particular place. I don't know, like maybe Baghdad, Washington, D.C., or anywhere in New Jersey. <laughs> I'm from New Jersey, I can say that. <laughs> or from a particular group of people with an ideology we don't share, like the MAGA crowd or the liberal elites, or from an institution that holds opinions conflicting with our own, such as the Heritage Foundation or the ACLU. If we're honest with ourselves, there isn't one among us who hasn't ever dismissed someone who doesn't fit into our molds or meet our expectations in all kinds of ways. People whom we see as too dirty or too poor, too religious or too agnostic, too rich or too entitled, too ignorant or too full of herself, too southern or too foreign, too liberal or too conservative. Our opinions, these things that come to us from our groups and we hold in our tiny little heads, make it so easy to be dismissive of the other. And we can probably all relate to Philip too. When we declare our opinions, when we are certain of their truth and someone gets snarky with us, as Nathaniel does here with Philip, our tendency might be to push back with our own defensiveness or attempts at persuasion. I mean, I can imagine certain folks, maybe folks not too terribly far from here, in fact, saying things like this about us, even to us. A thing like, those heretics, can anything good come out of common thread? And can we see ourselves responding, hey, we are the real Christians here, check out our website, read Brian McLaren, here's our brochure. <laughs> of course we can imagine responding this way, maybe we even have responded this way. It's a very human thing to do. Well, Philip responds differently. He meets Nathaniel's doubt not with arguments or apologetics, not with reason or logic, but simply with an invitation, come and see. It is an invitation for Nathaniel to move beyond his judgments, to witness and experience the unfolding of the divine in another human being, in someone who comes from a place he can't imagine giving life to anything good. It's an invitation to encounter. Because we don't come to know and love each other by listening to each other's opinions, and we certainly don't come to know and love God by being convinced through each other's opinions. We come to know and love God through encounter, and that means encounter with the other, the other in whom God lives. 
I quoted this passage, passage from Krista Tippett's book, Becoming Wise, last week before Cherie's wonderful talk about unifying through diversity. I can disagree with your opinion, it turns out, but I cannot dis disagree with your experience. And once I have a sense of your experience, you and I are in relationship, acknowledging the complexity in each other's position, listening less guardedly. The difference in our opinions will probably remain intact, but it no longer defines what is possible between us. We can't help but have opinions, but when we give them too much power, we risk confining the incomprehensibly infinite to our exceedingly limited understanding. Opinions held too tightly, religious or otherwise, can become our idols and cause us to overlook the sacred in unexpected places, in people who differ from us, and in experiences that challenge our safe and comfortable narratives. The more we are attached to our opinions, or maybe the more importance we attach to the opinions we do hold, the less we're going to be able to be open to something new, to find grace in unexpected places, to grow in the spiritual life, or in any other way. Zealous opinions are like invisible walls that we construct around ourselves, shaping our perceptions, impeding the possibility of genuine, authentic relationship with the other, and thus limiting our capacity to experience the fullness of God's presence in one another, which is to say, limiting our capacity to experience the fullness of God. Haven't we all seen this before? When we see our neighbor's yard signs that indicate they're voting for the candidate with whom we disagree, so we avoid them, and never come to know the love they pour out into the caregiving they provide for another neighbor we didn't even know was sick. When we decide our coworker is nothing but a slacker because she is showing up late, missing deadlines and overly demanding, not knowing that her heart is close to breaking in her failing marriage. When the earnest Bible-believing pastor is afraid to move beyond the stern and unchanging God in the Bible that has formed his opinions so that he might be open to the transformative love of the living God in his gay daughter. We've all seen this before. I've done this recently. As we all know, we share this campus with three other distinct churches. Trey, the pastor of Ridge Road Baptist, describes these churches as a church rooted in Burmese culture, a contemporary church with a conservative theology, a traditional church with a moderate theology, and a church that is weird. <laughs> All right, I'm not going to lay that at Trey. I probably cut him off and just said weird because I'm, I'm going to own it, right? So often, often on Sunday mornings, this minister from the weird church will stand outside to greet folks. And the people from the contemporary conservative church will file their children out of the sanctuary and into their Sunday school classes while I'm there. I stand there. I attempt to make eye contact with these folks. And to this day, not one of them has looked my way. I mean, I get it, I thought to myself the first time this happened. In their church, women can't even speak, much less lead. And here I am, a lesbian with a microphone, And that's got to be pretty distasteful, if not threatening. But see what I did there? I made a judgment, an assumption that they are judging me. I can make an educated guess. I can have a reasonably informed opinion as to why they don't engage. But the truth is, I don't really know. Maybe they don't really know. 
I can't say for sure it would make a difference, but I do know I have no hope of encountering the divine in anyone in that community if I have that refrain running through my head. That last line of Tippett's quote up there is the clincher for me. The difference in our opinions will probably remain intact, but it no longer defines what is possible between us. Even if we maintain our opinions, which as humans we can't help but have, opinions which might be very good opinions, even very right opinions, these cannot be the deciders of relationship on the other side of authentic encounter with the other. Philip's invitation to Nathaniel is an invitation that comes down through the ages to us as well an invitation to find and share the divine life that unites us all through encounter with each other. That divine light is no more or less real in anyone. It's just more or less obvious. Those of us lucky enough to encounter the obvious divine light in someone as conscious and awake as Jesus or Maria's Hindu holy man are very lucky indeed. But when it comes to most people, if we want to know the divine light in them, we got to look for it. And in order to really look for it, we have to clear our lens of perception and put our preconceived notions and opinions in their proper place. Yes, Maria brought her preconceived notions with her to India back in 1995. But you know what else Maria brought with her? A heart just open enough to encountering a powerful divine love that she could not deny. Not knowing what to do with the experience of encountering the divine in the last place she'd been told to expect it made Maria deeply uncertain about evangelizing from that point on, leading her to set aside her preconceived notions in order to hold everything with curiosity. Once she put her opinions in their place, they eventually did change, not on the other side of argument, but on the other side of encounter and experience. Encounter and experience with the other others in whom she came to know God. In fact, in my opinion, it's the whole reason we're even here on this planet in the first place, to encounter God in each other so that God, in whom we live and move and have our being, might be manifest in us. Now, some spiritual practices, such as centering prayer or transcendental meditation, usually take time before they bear fruit once we take them up. The good news I'm sharing with you today is that putting our opinions in their place is a spiritual practice we can do today that can bear fruit today. 2024 is going to be a challenging year in our country. At a common thread, we take seriously the call to be healers and repairers of our world, tikkun olam in Hebrew. There are those who would ask, can anything good come out of common thread? at least as much good as came out of Nazareth, I'd say. But what I say hardly matters. It's how we are that creates a space in this very chapel that can serve as a kind of lighthouse for the greater community, a beacon of light and respite, of refuge, of peace and comfort for people who don't know where else to turn to escape the polarization that defines our times. I'm imagining this because I know the kind of people we are and the kind of love that runs through this community. That love isn't static though, and we cannot take it for granted or rest on our laurels. We are charged to continue to cultivate that love every single day. And the first step we're going to take toward a more robust and intentional cultivation of love among us this year is through the formation of life story groups. Life story groups are a hallmark of Common Thread, 
an opportunity to go deep, to get to know others within this community, all of whom have uniquely different opinions and perspectives. It will be good and fruitful practice to look for, to encounter, and to experience the divine in each other in these small groups, to listen without response or judgment, to be open and curious, to build new friendships and meaningful relationships. And the compounding result will be a stronger community rooted in even deeper love. So it'll be about a month from now when we form these groups, both here in the room and online. But I'd like you to be thinking about it and perhaps even committing to it now in your hearts. Let's strengthen our bonds of love here so that we can shine that light from within us more fully to have that love be obvious even to those with tightly held opinions and be a place that welcomes all who are weary and in need of rest. Now what does sharing this divine light with those who are weary and in need of rest look like? That's what we'll talk about next week. And so, indwelling divine, may we hold our opinions lightly May we be open to the possibility that goodness can emerge from the places we least expect. May we challenge ourselves to see beyond the surface and respond with joy to Philip's invitation in every moment, in every person we encounter, to come and see. Amen. Well, we are going to do what are you thinking, sensing, and feeling in a few minutes here in the room. But first, friends on the live stream, I'd like to invite you to join in on What Are You Thinking Online? My friend Scott is facilitating today, along with a group of wonderful folks who are always eager to welcome new people into the conversation. So if you're new, consider joining in to talk about the lesson and anything else that arises. You'll need a code to get in, and that code is 1417. So here in the room, everyone, let's put our hands on our hearts as we dismiss our friends. And remember that the divine indwells each one of us. The divine light is in us, which means the fruits of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity. They are in us, waiting to be shared. So let's extend our other hand toward our city and beyond, toward the people with whom we work and go to school, toward everyone we encounter as we endeavor this week to be healers and repairers of our world. Amen. Folks on the live stream, God bless you. You are dismissed. And folks in the room, I invite you to take a few moments to take... Three deep breaths, close your eyes, and just sit in a few moments of quiet. And if these recordings help you move forward on your spiritual journey, we hope you'll take an ownership stake in the community and support the health and well-being of the community. Go to our website, commonthreadchurch.org. The donate button is right there on the top. Thank you.